It's good to see you. It's great to be here, isn't it? And here, two young people give testimony and their desire to show to the world that they're a Christian, that they belong to him. And uh, those of you who take Children's Church will know that both of them are good at praying, and they've got that relationship with God that, uh, you know, is something that just naturally comes out of their hearts, which is good. I always love hearing what God is doing in people's lives, don't you? And uh, one of the things that both George and Shannon have received is a royal pardon. They didn't really dwell on that, but I'm going to. And so if we look up on the screen, we're continuing our series by royal invitation. So the title for this morning is A Royal Pardon. When I was 18 years old, I was standing in a courtroom in Lancaster. And I was accused of speeding, doing more than 40 in a 30 mile limit. And my dad went with me. And my dad spoke up for me. And he pleaded with the court to be lenient with me. He listened to all the other offences and he thought that mine was minor in comparison to those. And uh, (laughs) he said, he's a good lad. (laughs) And it's his first offence. So they reduced the fine by half. But I received a fine and an endorsement on my driving licence. You know, I would have loved it if the Queen had given me a royal pardon. (laughs) You know, the Cambridge Dictionary definition of a royal pardon is this. An official order given by a king or queen to stop the punishment of a person accused of a crime. Leniency is okay, but pardon is awesome. (laughs) You know, I would have loved to have walked out of that courtroom with no endorsements and no fine there would have been a great smile on my face if the Queen had pardoned me. But of course, she didn't. However, like George and and Shannon, I have received a royal pardon which is of far greater significance than getting me off, as it were, a fine and an endorsement on my licence. When I was age 14, I asked Jesus Christ to forgive me my sin, to remove my guilt, and he did. And I've got really good news this morning, because you have a royal invitation to receive a royal pardon. It's in your hands. It's in the hands of every single one of us this morning. This is my favourite verse in the Bible, so those of you regulars will know that this is my favourite verse, because I've said it before. It's 1 John 1 verse 9. It says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I I just love this invitation. I don't know if you noticed there was a condition. There was a condition to this royal pardon. If we confess our sins. This is one of the hardest things that we ever choose to do. This is not easy. It's simple, straightforward, but it is extremely difficult. You see, we do not like to admit our guilt. 
It is natural to protect our innocence. It's natural to say, not guilty, not me. And I just want to give one or two illustrations, because step one to protesting that we're not guilty is denial. I didn't do it. And uh, I have a lovely grandson called Caleb. His picture's going to come up on the screen. Isn't he cute? He's very, very cute. Very special. Very proud of him. Thirteen days ago, Caleb was at our house, and uh, he did a poo in his nappy. Now, he's potty training now, so he's moved on, but we're going back 13 days. So he went into our sunroom, and he shut the door, and he said, don't come in. My son-in-law, James, went in, and he could smell the poo. So he said, Caleb, have you done a poo? And Caleb said, no. No poo. In other words, not guilty, not me, not me. You know, we, we call that self-justification. It's self-justification by denial. Not me. I'm going to put you another image up on the screen. And some of you remember this image. You remember when he was President of the United States. I know it's a bit fuzzy, but this is the exact time that he was speaking these words to the cameras, President of the United States. He said, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. He was denying the poo. It's not my poo. I don't smell. I didn't do it. You know, whether you are two, or whether you are the most powerful leader in the world, it is natural to say, not guilty. To deny our guilt. Say, not me. Not me. And the rest of us in between, because we're all of us somewhere in between, two-year-old and the President of the United States, aren't we, in a sense? We're all in this together. The main difference is the older we get, the cleverer we get. Isn't it? Caleb said no poo and James followed it up. You smell like you've done a poo. And his response was no. No poo. A few years later, he could have moved from step one, which is denial, to step two, deflection. And he could have said something like this. Yes, there is a smell of poo, but the drains are blocked, James. Oh, that's the next one. <laughs> he could have said, there is a smell of poo. It's you, James. You've done the poo. Or he could have said this, and this is more often what people do say. I do smell, but it's all your fault. Because you didn't take me to the toilet. So it's not my guilt It's your guilt. You are the guilty one, not me. That is the blame game. Someone else's fault. I'm going to quickly give you an example of somebody that lived 1300 BC. Moses had led the people of Israel out of slavery into Egypt. The people had promised to love and follow God. The God who led them out of slavery into freedom. 
Moses had gone up a mountain to speak with God and he was up there for 40 days and the people thinking, where is this fella? And they thought, we want a God we can see. We want a God like all the other people have. So they hassled and harassed Aaron who was leading at that time. He'd handed over to Aaron and Moses and Aaron capitulated. So he made this golden calf so that they could worship this calf. And I love the words that Moses says to Aaron, it's a very simple question. He said this in Exodus 32:21. What did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Moses is clearly saying in that question, Aaron, you got some stuff wrong here. Aaron, the people have got some stuff wrong here. Just just tell me what happened. So all I want to know, just tell me what happened. And uh, instead, Aaron plays the blame game. And I, I want to read Aaron's response. Listen carefully. Do not be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold, jewelry, take it off. And they gave me the gold and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. (laughs) Interesting, isn't it? You know what Aaron does? He he takes the most powerful spotlight he can find and he shines it on all the things that they've done, exposes all of it and it's all true. And then he hides what he has done. Because if we read what really happened, so all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they'd handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with A tool. You see, the blame game is the oldest game in the book. Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. And the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. (laughs) The old ones are the best, maybe. (laughs) Every single one of us in this room is tempted to play the blame game. You know, when someone pulls us up and confronts us, hopefully in love, but our first thought is often, well, if so-and-so hadn't done X, I wouldn't have done Y, so it's their fault, not mine. If they hadn't done X, I wouldn't have been in that position, so I wouldn't have done Y, so it's their fault. Ever felt like that? Some honest people, not many, but there's one or two here. (laughs) Listen to these. You might have heard some of these before. Insurance claims. It's not my fault. I was going to work at 7am this morning. I drove out of my drive straight into a bus. The bus was five minutes early. (laughs) It's all the bus's fault, not mine. In an attempt to kill a fly... I drove into a telephone pole. It's all the fly's fault. It's not my fault. 
and my favourite. I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law, and headed over the embankment. (laughs) It's all the mother-in-law's fault. Let's not go there. You know, it's it's almost like we're born with a set of binoculars, and when we come out of the womb, we've got a pair of these fellas, and when anybody does anything wrong, we, we, we do this, and, you know, we, we mag- sorry, we do this. Yeah, that's better. We magnify it, and we, we see every detail of it. And then when it comes to what we get wrong, we switch them around. And we, oh, I can't really see it. It's that small. So we maximize others' mistakes, and we minimize our mistakes. See, Aaron had a choice. He could play the blame game or he could say the hardest words that we ever say. I was wrong. I should not have made the golden calf. Please forgive me. It's very easy to say a blanket sorry. It's very hard to name it. Isn't it? A child kicks the football through the window. Sorry. What are you sorry for? Well, I'm sorry. But what are you sorry for? I'm sorry I broke the window. It's really hard, isn't it? To say, I am sorry for a specific thing. I was wrong. Please forgive me. Aaron could have done that, but he didn't. He didn't have the courage to own up. So he played the blame game, self-justification. So step one is denial, not me. Step two is deflection. It's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. Step three is deception. It's cover-up. One of the worst cover-up stories in the Bible was a thousand years BC. And many of you will be very familiar with this story. It was David. He was the king of Israel. And one evening he was on his rooftop. They had flat roofs and he was on the palace roof. He was looking down onto other roofs and he saw a beautiful woman having a bath. She was called Bath Sheba. I wonder if she'd been having a shower. Whether she'd be called Shower Sheba. We'll never know. But anyway. You know, as king, he could easily say to one of his men, go and get that woman. And he did, and she came, and he slept with her, and she became pregnant. So he had to cover it up. So he thought the best thing is to get her husband back from the battlefield to bring a report to me, and he won't suspect anything. Then he'll go home, sleep with his wife, and everything will be fine. Put plan A into action. Uriah came, gave the report, but he didn't go home. He slept at the porch of the palace. King David wasn't impressed, so he got him drunk, so that the next night he would go home, but he didn't. He said, how can I... Go home when the men are on the battlefield sleeping in tents. He wanted to be loyal and honourable to his men. Plan A had failed, so plan cover-up B had to be put into place. So he gave Uriah a note to give to the general. So he took this letter to the general, and the general read it, and the note said, put Uriah on the front line, pull everybody back, make sure he's killed. And that is exactly what happened. And so Uriah died. 
Then David took Bathsheba to be his wife. It was all covered up. It was all in the background. David had done the job well, he thought. Till one day, Nathan the prophet came to David and he told him this story. He said there were two men in this town. One was rich and one was poor. The poor man had just one ewe lamb. It grew up with him and his children. This man used to share his food with the lamb. And he would hold his cup that he was drinking out of. And the lamb would put his head in the cup and would drink his drink. And then the man would cradle the lamb in his arms. And the lamb would go to sleep. It was like a member of the family. Then one day a traveller came to the town to meet with the rich man. And he, the rich man thought, I, I don't want to kill one of my many cattle or my many sheep. Why should I do that? I know what I'll do. I'll take the little ewe lamb from the poor man and I will barbecue it for the traveller. And that's what he did. As David heard this story, he began to get really angry. And his verdict was, the man who did this deserves to die. And Nathan looked at David and said, you are the man. You are the man. The Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all things. Every single one of us is capable of covering up sin and convincing ourselves that it doesn't matter, that we are not guilty. And when we do that, we end up with a blind spot. You know, when we have a blind spot, it is a very dangerous place to be. I don't know if you've ever been driving on the motorway and you've looked in your mirrors, there's no car, and you pull out into the lane, there's a car! Have you ever done that? Where did it come from? It was there all along. You know, David was just traveling along his everyday life. No guilt here. Everything's fine. Then, bang! Nathan's words go deep into his heart. You are the man. You are guilty. 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 The blind spot was no longer there. He'd been hit with the truth. David had a choice of how to respond. You see, David was king. He could have easily said, shoot the messenger. And he'd have got away with it because he was king. And when we suddenly realize that we are guilty, we have a choice. We can go to denial deflection or deceit and we can deceive ourselves David's response was very different to that he wrote a psalm 
And this psalm is very, very powerful. It shows what he felt when he realized his guilt. He says this. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion. Blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. David had great courage. He had the courage to say, guilty. I have sinned. I am the man. I did commit murder. I did commit adultery. And his list would go on. Every single one of us in this room has a list. I lied. I gossiped. I was jealous. I lost my temper. I got drunk. We could go on and on and on. The list is long. The reality is, every single one of us is the man or the woman. Every single one of us is guilty. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you imagine a list of people from here to the top of the wall, and at the bottom you've got people like Hitler, Paul Potts, People who you look at and think, well, they're really evil. And then at the top, you've got people who have done great acts of kindness, Mother Teresa or whoever you want to put up there. And then most of us would say, well, we're, we're somewhere in the middle. But on that list, we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. God is pure. God is holy. Totally spotless. There is no sin in him. And he's love. The amazing thing is that out of his love, he invites us to receive forgiveness. Jesus Christ offers a royal pardon and much, much more. He wants to speak over us this morning, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. How can he do that? How can he do that? Well, he can do that. He can justify us. He can say not guilty because of what he has done. I'm going to read some words that describe what Jesus did for us. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sin. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Even walking down that path going our own way is sin. Because God loves us He wants relationship with us. He's created us for relationship with Him. 
And that's why Jesus died on the cross. So that we might be in relationship with God. Coming back to that verse at the beginning, 1 John 1 verse 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us and cleanse us from all sin. The offer is to you. The offer is to me. I'm so glad that I've received the offer. So glad that there's no guilt here. Not because I haven't done anything wrong, but because Jesus has taken my guilt. He can take yours. Let's pray.